You're listening to the Home Staging Show podcast. I'm your host, Nilin. The show where we talk about all things real estate, home staging, and how to create a vibrant and thriving home staging business. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 157. Hey guys, as you know, 17 Hats was our main sponsor at SagerCon 2021. We recommend 17 Hats because it was a critical part of our home staging business and free us up from lots of paperwork, admin, and chasing clients with emails so that we can focus on what we love to do, which is staging. If you're like us, you probably didn't go into the business for the paperwork. You know, all those invoices, emails, reminders, to-dos, and just the incessant chasing after client for paperwork. So that's where 17 Hats comes in for us. It's like you cloned yourself. Their all-in-one platform automates your staging business. 17 Hats handles the tedious stuff like payment reminders, capturing leads, proposal, invoicing, and even scheduling. We actually created a resource guide for you on our site. Just go to stagetrimmer.com slash 17 Hats and find out more about how we use 17 Hats in our home staging business. If you're a current 17 Hats user, we would love to hear about your story too. You can submit your 17 Hats story on our site at stagemore.com slash 17 Hats. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Home Staging Show. I know we've been on hiatus for a while, so thank you so much for your patience. I'm really glad to be back, at least on a semi-regular publishing schedule. So we're going to publish twice a month instead of every single week. I think the issue just been that, you know, a lot of markets now are coming out of pandemic mode. So a lot of stagers are getting slammed. And that's why it's been really difficult to schedule guests on the show. And the other thing too, I just really needed to recover. I had talked about this, I think, briefly on one of the shows previously where I had some health issue early on this year and the recovery took longer than I imagined. And then also I just went into burnout mode. I don't know how or what triggered it, but I think a lot of it had to do with me realizing I wasn't very healthy physically, but also like maybe not very healthy mentally as well. And a lot of it had to do with being very, very stressed at work all the time and not having that proper release. So in the last few months, I really kind of slowed down a bit and then really focus on my own needs. And then also at the same time, figuring out what is a work schedule that makes sense. So I'm happy to report back that I am almost back to my normal old self. It's a process for sure. It's a process of learning where that balance and where that line is. I hate to use that buzzword, you know, work-life balance, because I always think it's a myth, but it is really important to take those things into consideration and also making sure that we are rigorously putting in mechanism to make sure that we are not burned out as business owner. Because once as the business owner, when you're burnt out, it really impacts your business significantly, especially if you have a very small team or you're like a one person show. So, you know, things are pretty much, I think, back to normal. I'm starting to find my rhythm again in terms of how much work and then also how much personal time and et cetera, et cetera. So thank you so much for your patience while we're on hiatus. I definitely really appreciate the break. And before we get started with the show today, just a quick reminder that StagerCon is coming up. I cannot believe how fast time really has passed this year. It just feels like all a blur. And in the blink of an eye, we're in July, you know. So just a quick reminder, StagerCon is happening on July 14th and 15th. So unlike the previous two years where we had four days of content, 
This year, we're only going to do two days, but it's themed. So the first day is for beginners. So if you're about to start your home staging business or you just started, this is the day for you. And the second day is for those of you who've been working for a while and maybe you're struggling with some growing pain right now. This second day is for you. So I think it's going to be exciting. We're also going to have hot seat session as well, which you can apply for when you register. Basically, the people we pick are going to be in the hot seat for the session. And we're going to discuss the challenges that you're facing with your home staging business live. So make sure if you apply for your hot seat, you can show up for those sessions live. So I think it's really exciting. I think it's really also important for us to kind of figure out what is the right format for SageRecon, especially after COVID. I have realized that people are not really wanting to have a lot of video content in general or wanting to sit in front of their computer for a long time. And so we're taking that into consideration when we plan out SageRecon this year. So it's definitely a smaller and more intimate affair. And it's not going to be kind of like the long Q&A sessions that we have in the previous year. So definitely shorter sessions, but more engagement. And then also, hopefully, you'll get more out of it in the process as well. And especially, I think, after COVID, all of us, our attention spans are getting shorter too. So that's why we also don't want to bombard you with tons of video content. And that's why we are doing shorter sessions compared to what we have done in the last year. But don't worry, the impact is still there. And I'm really looking forward to your feedback as well to see if this is working out for you. And in general, I'm really open to suggestions because one of the things I really want to do is to make sure that we are providing the right content, the right courses, the right live workshop, for example, to make sure that we can help you to build your home staging business. So anytime you have any suggestions or ideas about courses or workshops that you want to see, feel free to DM me on Instagram. And you know how to find us on any social media platform. It's at Stage for More. Or you can email me through the website as well, which is at stationworld.com. But yeah, that's super exciting. And also the early bird deadline for our Italian retreat is coming up at the end of the month as well on July 31st or before we sell out our four early bird spots. So if you want to come to Italy with me and have lots of good yummy food and also discuss your home staging business and pretty much able to write that off on your taxes, definitely consider it coming to Italy with me. The other thing we did this time with the in-person retreat is actually hired a co-teacher. So Elaine, who I've interviewed previously on our podcast, she's going to be the other teacher in the workshops with me. So it's really tailored workshop based on what you're needing right now in your home staging business. And in the retreat, we're going to set your goals for your next 12 months. And we're going to pick your top one to develop an action plan for it for the next 12 months. So you're going to be working. We're going to have workshops specifically tailored to your needs. And we're also going to have one-on-one sessions with you as well to help you knock out your action plan. And at the end of the retreat, you're going to share your action plan with your fellow sagers. And we're going to give you feedback. So it's a bit of coaching and mastermind, but obviously we're going to have time to have fun as well. There's A day, actually, we have an architecture and market tour that morning where you can explore Palmero, which is the capital city in Sicily in Italy. And in the afternoon, you can just, you know, go around, explore the city or come back to work on your own staging business action plan and things like that. 
We're also going to have an afternoon tea at a convent, which is something that's really unique and special. So if you're interested in the Italian retreat, that early bird deadline is coming up soon for sure. So definitely take advantage of that. And you can find all this information on our website at sagemore.com. All right, so about today's show. Today's show is obviously our favorite lawyer, Ali Moore. And Ali is a small business attorney focused on taking the fear and doubt out of running a small business by providing affordable, empowering legal resources for creatives. In addition to representing her clients through Creative Learn Law, she also has experiences in teaching students on how to represent small businesses and nonprofits in the Community Economic Development Clinic at the University of Denver's from College of Law. She also has worked for a judge in the Colorado Supreme Court and also working in the Colorado's Office of Attorney General. So she's very experienced. And I, what I really love about Ali, she's very no-nonsense. And her internal values when it comes to working with clients is really aligned with how we feel about working with our clients at the school. So she's really big on transparency, about being ethical, and also just in general providing good value and good services to the client. So I think she's just fantastic and also a great human being all around. And Ali has also been contributing lessons and courses to our course as well. So that has been really special. So for a five-figure full plan basic course, she has contributed lessons on business law basics, which is really important, you know, when you're starting your home teaching business, you need to understand what are some of the key things you need to know legally to make sure you are protecting your home staging business. She has also contributed lessons on the home staging contracts. And then she also created this home staging contract template for our students as well. So if you are interested in taking five for a full plan course, you can check that out on our website too. And the great thing about that course is we recently got accredited by RISA, which is the Real Estate Staging Association here in the States and also Canada as well, if you're based in Canada. So that's been a really exciting development. I really poured a lot of in when I was developing that course. So it was really nice to be able to get really positive feedback from RISA and they're really thrilled and that we are on board now. So now we're officially one of the education providers on uh, RISA. So if you go on their website at realestatesagingassociation.com, you will see us being listed under one of their education partner. So that's really exciting development for the school as well. And then Ellie also has taught live workshop for us. So she's done legal clinics and then also she's contributed a lesson in our new six-year full plan course as well. For those of you who've been working for a while and maybe you've hitting plateau with your staging business, I'm rewriting this course for you. And inside that course, Ali has contributed the legal section of it. So when you're scaling and growing your home staging business, there are a few things that are going to be changing as well in your business. So one of the things could be legal structure. So she talked a lot about that inside the lesson where maybe you started out as sole proprietor and you move on to an LLC and then now maybe S corporation is a better option for you. So she laid out the comparison of that and also talk about the tax ramification of changing the business structure. She also talked about intellectual property, which is really important. As your business grows, you're going to accumulate more intellectual property through your business. So that could be maybe the way you do business or you want to develop a course or you have a very special way of doing things, whatever it is. So she discussed the pros and cons and also the trademark 
if you're interested in doing that for your home staging business. And lastly, she discussed the legal side of hiring. So employee versus independent contractor. These are very important distinctions that you need to know as a business owner, as you grow your business and grow your team as well. All right. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hi, Ellie. Welcome to the show. Before we get started today, for those listeners who are not familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and also your business? Sure, Cindy. It's so nice to be here. My name is Allie Moore. I'm a Colorado licensed attorney. My business is called Creatives Learn Law. And before I was ever a lawyer, I was a creative small business owner. I had a portrait and wedding photography company for about 10 years. And then I went to law school. I worked for a judge on my state Supreme Court. I worked in our state attorney general's office, and I decided to go back. I love the world of entrepreneurship and in particular people who have a creative focus in their business, women-owned businesses, really small businesses. So I decided to focus my law practice there. And I've been doing this for about three years. And it's just helping other business owners with their contracts is really fun and rewarding. And I think it's the best thing I could do as a lawyer. So that's who I am and how I got here. That's absolutely amazing. I do love that you have a creative background. So I think you really understand kind of like the pain creative professionals go through. Yeah, I think creative professionals are particularly likely to have situations with clients that are both challenging to navigate and really emotionally difficult because they're usually really invested in their work. (laughs) They feel like it's part of their vision or, or part of their creative life in addition to being part of their professional life. Yeah. It, I think it is hard not to take it personally sometimes, even though like your rationale, your brain tells you not to, but your heart feels a little hurt, you know, or offended yeah. or whatever it is, you know, you yeah. can take it very personally. And I think that's why it's really important to discuss ways to protect ourselves and our businesses as well. And I, I also see this happen a lot with the creative professionals. You know, I also work as a photographer and artist in addition to my work in staging, that I do see a lot more creative people. A lot of times it's really difficult for them to run businesses because Mm -hmm. they feel, I don't know, sometimes maybe it's a mindset issue, I think, that people automatically feel like, oh, if this is not creative, this is not something I want to deal with. I just want to make my art or be creative. I don't really want to deal with like the admin, the contract, the invoice and all that. Yeah, I think people too especially if you grew up being somebody who was artistic or creative, maybe you heard a lot that, oh, you're just not a math person or, oh, that's just not what you're good at. But you can definitely learn. Everybody can learn these things. Just like anybody could learn to draw or anybody could learn to take photos. Like they're all skills. And even if it's harder to get started for you, you can absolutely still learn them, including business law. You can learn it. Yeah, exactly. And for those of you who don't know, or maybe heard of Ali before through us, is because Ali and I, we actually collaborated on our five-figure floor plan course. This is really the key foundation course that we wrote just for beginner stagers, or if you just started as well. And Ali contribute on the law side of the staging business foundation part of this course. And so she did the contract, like she walks through exactly what it takes 
for a contract to be legal, where the components in it, and then also she create a staging business contract for us as well. And she also talked about business structure. So it's essentially everything you need to know when you start your home staging business, like the legal side of things. We actually did a lot of research, right? We also had a focus mm-hmm. group before we actually finish those particular modules in the five-figure four-plan course. And I think one of the surprising things I personally found was that a lot of new stagers actually didn't know that they need a business license to operate, right? Can you talk a little bit about what someone would need legally before they start their home staging business? Sure. And before I jump into the legal information, the sort of substantive part of this episode, I do just need to give a disclaimer to explain that everything I talk about here today is legal education. I'm talking about the law in general. I might use examples, what I would advise business owners in particular situations to do, but it's not a substitute for legal advice. And that's important to understand because legal advice is something that you can only get when you've told somebody, you've told a lawyer about your situation, and they've taken into account where you're at. So I'm going to give some general information about things like business licenses, but they might not be true for your business based on where your business is located and your operations. So that's the difference between stuff you can get on a podcast and stuff you get when you're in a one-on-one relationship with a lawyer. But as for your question, Cindy, business licenses you mentioned as something that people aren't aware of that they need. So business licenses are a local or, or sometimes a state requirement. So I practice in Colorado. Colorado does not require a business license at the state level. I would say maybe a quarter of our local governments require a business license to operate. So what you need to do as you get started with a new home staging business is do a little bit of research. You need to look, you can start by Googling, is a business license required in name of your state, and then start looking at your city and your county. It's possible that you figure out that a business license is required in none of those places. And so you operate without a business license, which is true for my business. As you're doing research, because I know doing legal research online can be really challenging. Something I like to keep in mind to guide my research is that if I'm looking at a state like California, which is a progressive state known to regulate pretty heavily, That if I'm not finding a license requirement, I should look a little bit more closely just to make sure I haven't missed it. If I'm looking at a state like Wyoming or Oklahoma, which is known to be really business friendly and not to have too many regulations, I rest a little bit easier if I can't find a requirement because it makes sense that they might not have one. Yeah. I mean, we are based in California, so we're really used to essentially filing paperwork at all times for any sort of thing. And I think sometimes it's even more confusing because, right, you're operating within your city where your warehouse is based out of, but you might also work in neighboring city. Mm -hmm. And so then the question becomes, do I apply for business license in those cities as well? You know, what are your thoughts on that? What are some of the best way to research that answer? Yeah. So again, the question is going to be always about the city where you're doing the work. So for example, let's say that you keep all of your staging inventory in one city, but you really market heavily in another city and a high percentage of your clients are in that other city. I would say that it's worth it to jump into the city code of the city where you have a lot of clients or where you really market and see what their business license requirement is. The nice thing about local government requirements is that unless we're talking about really, really big 
cities, often you can call City Hall and you don't get a phone tree. Like you can get a person who can help you and talk to you about business license requirements. So it's certainly worth digging into. It could be that the city has such a broad business license requirement that you need a business license even if you only ever stage one home there. The reality, and I always advise people to follow the law, but the reality is that if you are just feeling totally overwhelmed because you have clients in 10 different municipalities and you can't figure out all of these business license requirements and there's a city where you only stage one home a year, I would like people to do their best and to also remember when they go to sleep at night that if they are only staging one home a year in a city, that they're not the kind of person that that city is probably looking for to enforce that law against them. So certainly I would say do your best. If there are places where you operate really regularly, places where your business is headquartered, take extra care. Other cities where you happen to do business occasionally, sometimes the business license rules are just not set up for you. Like the business license rules are written for brick and mortar businesses. They apply to other businesses but it looks like something a restaurant would follow, not something somebody who serves clients across a whole metro area would be able to follow. So sometimes it just becomes really challenging to navigate, and I, I understand that. So I think do your best and also keep in mind the level of risk if you're feeling like, oh, wow, it would cost me all of my time and energy as a brand new business owner to comply with these license rules because I do business in so many different cities. Do your best and don't lose too much sleep over things that are really not designed for a business like yours. Yeah. I would say keep it simple in the very beginning. I mean, I think where you're headquarter, definitely you should look into that requirement for sure, especially for your city, especially for those of you who are based in California. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we want to we always want to follow the law, but especially when states are known to be really aggressive enforcers, it's extra important. Yeah, and where are some of the elements that should be in a home staging contract? So, a home staging contract, I like to think about the contract as sort of tracking the lifespan of the relationship between you and your client. So, one of the things that makes home staging contracts really unique is that I think there's a fair amount of home staging contracts that are not between the client and the homeowner, or excuse me, not between the stager and the homeowner. Instead, they're between the stager and the real estate agent. And then there's also a homeowner. Certain things need to be squared away with the homeowner and certain things need to be squared away with the listing agent. So the home staging contract needs to take into account the way that that relationship works. And if you have a real estate agent paying you, but you're using the homeowner's home, you need to address that. If you are keeping it more simple and you've got the homeowner paying you, or at least the homeowner is willing to agree to the payment obligation, even if their listing agent is actually going to make the payment, that's going to make for a much easier contract. If you can just have a contract directly with the homeowner And if the listing agent decides to pay your fees, that's fine, but it's the homeowner who's actually obligated. What you do as you work out your contract is you sort of take yourself mentally through start to finish. What does my relationship look with these parties, the homeowner or the homeowner and the listing agent? And what policies do I have in my business at each point in the relationship? So like collecting payment, bringing inventory to the home, finishing the staging, taking the inventory away. And what policies do I need to enforce at each of those chronological 
points in the relationship. So typically, I will start contracts up front with a payment section that will explain how much the fees are, what's subject to additional fees, what happens if the client pays late, is there a late payment fee, what happens if the client bounces a check, all of those sorts of questions about payment that are right for the business owner at hand. So if business owners don't take checks, I don't include a check about check policy. But so starting with payment and then next sort of explaining what services do you provide as the home stager? What level of input do your clients get to give? Once your inventory is set up, what's your client's job in terms of keeping that inventory safe while it's in their home? What do they need to do to make sure that the inventory is not damaged? And what risks do they need to be aware of as the inventory is there, especially if you stage with things, for example, like an air mattress on a regular bed frame, which is designed to look at and not to sleep on? You might want to explain like that the furniture can't be used, that the client accepts any risks that happen if they use the furniture because it's really not designed for daily use and that the client takes responsibility for any wear and tear. So those sorts of policies that apply when the inventory is left in the home. And then you want to explain what happens at teardown, like how many days do they have access to the inventory? What happens if the home doesn't sell in that amount of time? So that's sort of the way I would go through chronologically. And then at the end of the contract, I address a bunch of what ifs, like what happens if somebody can't be there because of COVID. If you can't stage on the set day that you were supposed to stage because there's COVID in the client's home and so you don't want to be in there with your crew. Or what happens if there is, we call a force majeure event, like there are mudslides that close down the whole city while your staging inventory is in the client's home. What happens if there's damage to your inventory while it's in the home? What happens if there has to be pest mitigation because it turns out the client's home had bed bugs? You address each of those questions and then other what ifs. And then typically I close up with a clause about what happens if there's a dispute. So a dispute resolution clause can include something like an agreement to mediate a dispute or an agreement to go to arbitration instead of going to court. Mediation and arbitration are both alternative dispute resolution options. Typically, mediation is really attractive to creative small business owners. It means that you sit down at a conference room table and you pay a professional mediator and you try to figure things out before you go before a judge, which is usually less threatening, less complicated than going before a judge. Arbitration is just a private alternative to the court system, not necessarily less complicated, maybe cheaper, maybe not. Whether you choose mediation or arbitration or not, you also want your dispute resolution clause to say where any lawsuit would happen. Ideally, that's going to be the city that's most convenient to you, most convenient to you as the business owner, and to also explain what state's law is going to govern. And again, that should probably be the state where your business is headquartered. But most importantly, it should be the state where the attorney who reviewed your contract is competent to practice law. So there's a lot of sort of flexibility. You can sometimes choose between multiple states, but if you work with a lawyer, they can figure that out. But you definitely just want to have certainty and predictability if there was a lawsuit. So that's what those dispute resolution clauses will do. Yeah, I think it's really important to kind of lay out all the possible scenario up front so the clients understand. Ultimately, I think contract is really a communication tool. It communicates what you want and what you want to get out of it. And then what are your professional policies as well? You know, like you talk about getting paid and all those really 
important things in our business that we are very familiar with, but our clients are not. Yeah, I think that's true. And the one thing that I would add too is I think the contract is sort of the one place where you want to have all of those policies and your savvy clients may read it and may remember what's in there, but also you want to make sure you're communicating those policies in other more readable places. So like in your canned emails, if you have an email sequence that you use with clients so that they later aren't saying, wait, I didn't know that you know, there was an extra charge if I needed the furniture for extra time. And you're saying, well, on page six of the contract, it's helpful if the stuff that comes up often, you also communicate with your clients in an initial consult, in your email communications. Maybe if you have like a PDF you use to onboard clients, that's like graphic design forward, not just some fine print. (laughs) It's really great for customer service reasons, not for enforceability reasons. Your contract is enforceable, even if your client did not read it. But for customer service reasons, it's great to also communicate those things in a more human-centered way. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. We've done that before where we just constantly reminding clients what's in the proposal, those things that are really important, but often missed. And one of the things I realized to most of the clients actually don't read their contract. They just get them and then sign them as a formality, but they don't actually read what's in it. So like things that people might miss all the time, you know, making sure the house is empty or ready to be staged before we show up. There should be electricity and water at the house, blah, blah, blah. Like we just remind those clients basically every Mm -hmm. step of the way, you know, before we show up for the proposal, on the proposal itself, on the invoice and all this thing, just be a better, I think, for customer service as well, like you said. Because I think from the client standpoint, if I said, oh, I didn't realize X, Y, and Z, and you just come back and say, well, it's in the contract, even though you're right, Ask the business owner, people on the client side is still going to be like, you know, absolutely not really very good about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we can sort of understand too, like when we're dealing with bigger companies, like Comcast is our big internet and cable provider here in, in Colorado. They sell you this promotional price. Like your price is going to be $19.99 a month. And then buried in the fine print is, well, after 12 months, it's $80. But as a customer, even though it was my responsibility to read the fine print, I do not have good feelings about Comcast when my price goes from $20 to $80 because it doesn't feel reasonable. That doesn't feel like a reasonable change. So being more upfront, if Comcast was more upfront with me and said, $20 introductory price, $80 lifetime price, if that was part of the deal I thought I was accepting, then I would like Comcast more than I do. I know. I feel like I've been traumatized by years of cell phone contracts Mm -hmm. because there's always some sort of tiny fine print that's like really hidden in the contract that I didn't know when I agreed to. And then when my contract is up and there are like all these extra fees starting to pop up, part of me feels very commitment phobic. It's because Mm -hmm. it's all these cell phone contracts that really screws me up, especially things like roaming. Oh my God. <laughs> when I when I first moved to Europe, when I went to my photography school in Paris, and then it was like a 20 euro flat fee. And then you can roam anywhere in Europe that is included in your 20 euro. And then I'm always like so scared when I travel and then be like, am I going to get a bill that's thousands of euros at the end of the month because I'm traveling abroad? 
things like that. Yeah. And the, the thing about cell phone companies is they're really big companies. There's maybe five or six that you can choose from. And so they don't really care how you feel because they know that the, your only choice is to go to their competitor that probably has the same policy. When you're a creative small business owner or really any small business owner, that's just not the case. You don't have the luxury of acting like Comcast or Verizon, because you really need to maintain a good relationship with your clients so that you can get referrals because you're probably in a relatively saturated market. Like there's a lot of other people who may operate their business differently from you that your clients can choose from. So it becomes extra important for small business owners to make sure that their client experience is a really positive one. Yeah. I think really ultimately it's a positive experience that brings clients back, that mm -hmm. really ups your booking rate. I've noticed that after working for a while, sometimes it's not because you stage the best or you're the cheapest. Oftentimes it's how clients feel when they're working with you. If it's a general positive experience, especially on the agent side, and then they feel like their sellers are really happy when they work with you, chances are they're going to book you, even though you might be slightly more expensive than your competitors, or maybe your staging is not as nice, but it's good enough for a listing then usually you're more likely to get rebooked just because your customer service are great. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'm really glad that you say that, Cindy, because I actually also believe that even more than having a contract or having the right things in your contract, that that positive customer experience and that making your clients feel respected and heard is the best way to reduce your risk of getting sued. I think I probably talked about this in the five-figure four plan class, but it's not the doctors that have the worst patient outcomes that get sued. It's the doctors that have the worst bedside manner. If people don't like you because you're rude to them, you're abrasive, you surprise them with things that are buried in the last paragraph of the contract, then they are going to be a lot bristlier with you, right? They're going to be a lot more skeptical of you, and they're going to be more likely to feel like they need to resolve their dispute with you by making legal threats instead of having a conversation with you and trusting you to make it right. So I totally agree. I think good customer service is key to limiting legal risk and to running a business that thrives. Yeah, and also I feel like after a pandemic, there's a trend for businesses to be more human-centric. Mm -hmm. And consumers are calling out on that, especially on big corporations who are using... For example, right now we're recording, it's going to be Pride Month soon, right? So a lot of corporations start coming out with a rainbow marketing and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And they're being criticized as performative, right? Because every other month, they don't really care about gay people. But all of a sudden, it's Gay Pride Month. And then all the marketing has come out with that. Recently, Walmart got into trouble, right? Because they start making these merchandise for Juneteenth. Things like ice cream mm -hmm. and, you know, just... Like play on stereotypes about the population and people really are just so sick of it, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's room to integrate. Like it might feel like your marketing work is really distant from what goes in your contracts. But the bottom line is what's the ethos behind your business? What do you want your customers to experience? What do you want to communicate to your customers? And answering those questions, identifying sort of your values in your business, what you want it to feel like to work with your business is going to resonate both in your contract terms and the way that you enforce them. Sometimes our contract terms are stricter than the way we actually treat people, which is okay. But, you know, at least in the tone of your contract and your policy about how strictly you're holding people to those terms, it will also resonate through your marketing. 
you know, that's what branding is, right? I know that branding doesn't often trickle down to the contract level, but the idea is people know what to expect from you. But I feel like you also should, right? Because mm-hmm. I feel like every piece of your communication with your client, it should be very consistent. So that experience is the same. So it doesn't make sense when you're like a warm and fuzzy brand. And then when you get a contract, it's like cold and like hardcore. And it just like feels like a slap in the face. That's really right. contrary to the brand experience. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really tricky balance because I do tell people when I'm drafting contracts with them, I say, I want you to think not about the clients who you love, but I want you to think about the most annoying clients, like the clients that you have had that have made you think, wow, my price needed to be 10 times higher for this level of demand from, from what that I'm getting. So write your contract for your most annoying clients. But even when you're writing your contract for your most annoying clients, that doesn't mean you need to be like as extreme and protective as possible. Like if you would absolutely never decline a client's request to remove a piece of art, then don't write a clause that says the client can give absolutely no input to the staging. Balance the language in your contract so that it reflects it reflects you on the day when you really have to draw your and hold your boundaries. <laughs> it doesn't need to reflect the nicest, most giving version of you, but it still needs to be you. Yeah, it does need to draw that boundary and that line. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think healthy boundary creates healthy client relationship, mm-hmm. right? So that's really what it's all about. And earlier, you talk about enforceability of the contract. Let's say that we performed the work, but things got too crazy. We sent the contract and we realized, wow, actually, we never got the signed contract back. But, right. you know, the work is already done. And then let's say, well, something bad happened. Sure. Somebody came in and stole a bunch of stuff. So then what happens? Even though we performed the work, the contract was sent, but it was never signed. Whether you've sent a contract and it did not get signed or if you just didn't send a contract, you still have a contractual relationship, even if there was no signed document. The reason you still have a contractual relationship is because while we think about contracts as this fine print piece of paper, really a contract, and when I say contract, what I mean is a legally enforceable set of promises. So you have a legally enforceable set of promises when you've got two people coming together and they are agreeing to exchange value. As long as there are two people coming together and they're agreeing to exchange value, you do have a contract. The question is, what are the terms of the contract? So in a situation like Cindy mentioned, where you have sent fine print terms, let's say that the client got those fine print terms, they didn't sign, but they paid the invoice after. You have a pretty strong legal argument that even though your client didn't sign that contract, they had a chance to read the contract and they chose to pay the invoice. So that suggests that they were willing to be bound by those terms because what other terms would apply unless the client sent a counterproposal, like if they emailed you a bunch of other stuff, but assuming that they just forgot and they just didn't sign and they pay instead... Down the line, if you needed to, you could argue that those terms still apply because your client accepted them by signing. Whether you can make that argument successfully or not is going to depend on the language of your contract. And I always recommend the best thing to do because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The best thing to do is to chase people down and ask them to sign. But I totally understand that that doesn't always happen. There's a lot of moving parts in running a business. You're not just totally out of luck if you have no signed contract. There are still 
rules in terms of just the law that could help govern your situation. And there's also could be other terms that you guys have agreed to, whether it's in a situation like Cindy described, or it's just, you've got expectations laid out in email, or you had conversations with somebody. Conversations are harder because you don't need maybe have evidence if it was a phone or an in-person conversation. So I love just following up with an email or following up even with a text. Emails are easier to organize and not to lose. It doesn't mean that there's nothing for you. It's not signed contract or nothing. There's lots of other stuff that could help you and could support you if you got into a dispute with your client. It just the more things we have to fight about, especially as a small business, like we are not a really big company that's going to spend tons of money on lawyers just for the sake of proving ourselves right to our clients, right? Like we're really small businesses. We don't want to do any of that. So chances are we might just dip out of a conflict really early on because it's just expensive. And so we'd rather just square things away with our client, even if it means giving something to them or conceding to them. We just want to get rid of the conflict. And so for that reason, it's really great to be as clean as possible in your record keeping because the more straightforward your legal arguments are, like your contract is signed and the language is very clear, then the less likely it is you get in complicated disputes. But that doesn't mean you've got nothing. Even if you have no signed contract, you still may have some legal grounds to argue with your client. Yeah. Ultimately, get into the good habit and always have a paper trail, right? Yeah. Yep. Paper trail is so important. Oh my God. It is. (laughs) It really is. And I do encourage people sometimes. I think I talk to people who will say, well, I don't want to get on the phone with my client because I want to have it in writing. The problem with that is that you can often really diffuse tension by getting on the phone. And you know yourself, right? Every business owner knows themselves. Sometimes I talk to people who like have really sharp tempers and they're like, you know what? Honestly, I think if I get on the phone with this person, I'm going to make it worse. Like listen to your intuition. But if somebody just wants to complain to you and they want to hear you say that you're sorry, getting on the phone with them and doing that can be awesome. They just want to be heard sometimes. And if they're not feeling like they can be heard by speaking directly with you, that's when they start making legal threats. So sometimes a phone call can make a huge difference. Like I mentioned before, I just really recommend that you follow that phone call up with an email and they don't need to respond and say, yes, I agree with how you've summarized the conversation. The fact that you've sent the email and they did not object to it is going to indicate that that's really what happened during the phone conversation. Don't be phone shy when you're in tough situations. Yeah, I definitely encourage that. I've noticed that the younger generations don't like phones. Like when I did Mm -hmm. my last MA, we have some 20-year-old, they did the MA right after BA. And they're very like scared about their phone. And I'm like, you know, they invented phone for us to talk to each other on it. (laughs) Not to watch Netflix or like get on your email or play games. They're like, yeah, I know, but I don't want to talk to you on the phone. Can you just text me? Sometimes I kind of hate it because texting takes so long. Oh my God. Writing an email or texting actually takes so long. It's just so much easier to get on the phone. We can get it done in five minutes instead of trying to like figure it out. It definitely can be quicker. And then it's also, if emotions are running high, it's very easy in an email or in a text to have the wrong emotional impact. In a phone, it's just a little bit easier because you get to hear people's voice. You get to give them space to say things that they might not feel comfortable putting in an email. Similarly, you get to say things that you might not feel comfortable putting in an email. It just can be really helpful for relationships. 
Yeah, I would say so. But let's say we did everything right. We got the contract signed. Everything was fine. But then after the project, we have some leftover invoice that haven't been paid, and the client disappeared. What are some of the things that、uh-huh. we can do to rectify those situations? I'm assuming taking to people to court is really like the last resort, right? Yeah, I would certainly say so. Mostly because even if you can take a client to what's called small claims court, so small claims court is the lowest level of court for civil disputes in Colorado. The as long as you're fighting over less than seventy five hundred dollars, you can go to small claims court. Other states are going to have different limits. That's called a jurisdictional limit. Small claims court is designed to be navigated without lawyers, so you can save a ton of money by going to small claims court because you're not paying legal bills, which is the really expensive part of suing someone. Court fees are not that expensive; it's the legal bills that are really expensive. So the key is to put yourself in a position where you are not even having to worry about going to court. Not necessarily because it's expensive; it might be inexpensive, but even if it's inexpensive, it's deeply time-consuming and it's emotionally stressful for most people. I do have some clients who have navigated small claims court successfully once or twice. People who. Typically, it's just people who have a lot of years of experience in business. You know, you run a business for twenty years, you might get sued. <laughs> But the first time you go to court, it's really nerve wracking. And usually, when people have gone, they're like, "Okay, that wasn't as bad as I thought." But it's just something you typically want to avoid because it takes your attention away from the other parts of your business that generate profit and move your business forward. So, a couple of things. First, I absolutely recommend that people do everything they can to structure their payments in a way. So that they're paid in full before they're providing the service, if clients are able to agree to that, and you can put money into a special account, like a I use a, what's called a trust account in my law firm, where you put unearned money in that account, and you can tell your client, "Hey, you pay in full upfront. I put your fee in this account. When I'm done with the work, I move it to this account, so that if you need to make a refund, you can." But If you wait until the end to get paid, so your client doesn't pay you until work is completed, it's true that you have pretty limited remedies, or at least you have limited attractive remedies when it comes to getting that last payment from your client. So, some options: structure your payment so that you're paid in full at a point when the client still has a reason to maintain the relationship with you, like before you remove the inventory or something like that. Get a credit card on file. That helps. Certainly, people can cancel credit cards, no question. But it just becomes like a little bit less likely because it's another hoop that they're going to have to jump through. If somebody has stiffed you on the bill and you don't have a credit card on file, there are options. You can explore selling their account to a collections agency. You can try small claims court. You could get a lawyer just to write a demand letter where you're threatening. We have had clients where we've helped them in that way, where their client has just not paid them, and there's no question that it's because the client thinks that the business owner isn't going to stand up for themselves, and so a demand letter from a lawyer makes the client think. Okay, this person's serious, and so they pay up. The downside to sending a demand letter is that if the client doesn't respond to the demand letter, like so, a demand letter is just a letter saying I'm going to sue you if you don't pay. Then you either have to make good on the demand letter, like you have to go file the lawsuit, or you look like somebody whose word doesn't mean anything, which doesn't really help you when you're working with somebody who's likely to commit fraud by not paying your last bill. 
So anyway, those are some options. They are not amazing options. When I get this phone call at my office, I'm often telling people basically like, how much is that issue? Because if it's not at least $5,000, you're probably going to be disappointed (laughs) in every option and you're going to choose to just write it off and change your business policies for next time because it's it's a headache. It's definitely a headache. Yeah, for sure. And is having contract 100% protected? Yeah, absolutely not. The <laughs> contract doesn't 100% protect you for a couple of reasons. First, there are some risks that you can't contract away from. So you can't make your client accept all of the risks because we have public policies that protect consumers. We have public policies about when you can waive your right to sue somebody who causes you injury. So carry insurance. I actually think if you can only invest in one, if you're like, well, I can get a contract or I can get insurance, I mean, it's a tough choice. I hope people aren't making that choice, but I might personally go with insurance just because insurance should provide you with some legal defense if issues arise and it's going to do the most to protect your personal assets because you're going to get some financial coverage there. But, and so absolutely always recommend contract plus insurance. That's general commercial liability insurance is what's going to protect you if somebody gets hurt or professional errors omissions insurance is what's going to protect you if you mess up on a job and somebody sues you because you didn't do your job as a home stager. And then you can also use an LLC or limited liability entity to protect you from liability. Because I live in a state where LLCs are very inexpensive, I recommend all of my clients form LLCs because there's no reason not to. In other states like California, LLCs are very expensive, so it might not be worth it. But what you need to do is just understand what kind of protection LLCs offer. And the biggest benefit to having an LLC is that you enter into contracts as an LLC instead of as a person. And that means that if you breach a contract, like let's say you have a bunch of home staging contracts lined up and your inventory is destroyed. So you have to breach a bunch of staging contracts agreements. And then all those people have to go out and hire other stagers and they're suing you for the cost of having to hire other stagers or for the loss of not being able to sell their home for as much, things like that. Worst case scenario, you can bankrupt your home staging company. Even if you lost all those lawsuits, they're breach of contract lawsuits. And so when the company is out of money, then the people suing you are out of luck. On the other hand, if you had signed those contracts personally, they could get your car and your home equity, and they could garnish your wages and those sorts of things. Obviously, that's a pretty unlikely scenario. Those are not the kinds of scenarios my clients are usually facing. So certainly, I think LLCs serve a purpose. And I think it's reasonable if creative small business owners understand what LLCs do and decide to go a different route. But that's another thing you can do to protect yourself. And there will just always be some level of risk. There's going to be some risk in running a business. Home staging is not construction. It's not engineering where you're at risk of lots of people being injured or or really serious property damage if you mess up. But there's risk and that's the role of being a business owner is you take some risks. Yeah, I would say so. One of our primary job, I think, as a business owner is to really minimize any sort of risk that can come to the business, right? We're essentially the warrior. We're defending our castle, essentially. And I think it's really important to understand that is the primary responsibility we have towards our business. When I first started staging, I heard this horror story that I still tell to this day. 
that for this particular listing, the listing agent really wanted candles at the house. So the stager provided all these candles and not even the listing agent, the showing agent, which meant a random agent from their office was showing the listing. And so he lit all the candles before the open house, wanting to create that ambiance. But when he left, he forgot to blow out some of the candles and it burnt the house down. So naturally there was a lawsuit and because it was stager's inventory. So she was also named in the lawsuit as well. And the horror story I heard was that because she was a sole proprietor, so naturally they were able to go after her personal asset. And so from then on, when I first heard the story, immediately I was like Googling, like what are some of the things I can do to protect my business? And so, yeah, so I think that's the thing is that we need to make sure our business structure is going to help us shield our personal assets, especially those of us who have families or properties or cars or anything that is substantial, right? And then contract and liability insurance. I think these three are really the most important thing to get started out with. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'll just say that it's also possible that they still could have named her personally in the lawsuit, even if she had an LLC, because we're all responsible for our individual actions. So if she was the person who put those contracts out there, they could just name her as a person and an LLC in the contract. If you have a bigger company, so like we can't all be suing the CEO of Apple every time an iPhone breaks because he's too far removed. <laughs> like he's too far removed probably, unless you can prove that he individually was actually involved. But if you yeah, are he small, put that iPhone together, yeah, in he the put the, or he supervised the person who put the iPhone together, even. But in general, when we have really small businesses, often an LLC is not going to protect us from those personal injury lawsuits because you, as a person, were involved, and so they can just name you in the lawsuit too. Which is one of those reasons that I really believe in insurance. And when you get to a point where there's hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in losses. Regardless of what your contract says, they're probably going to name you in the lawsuit. Like they're going to want to fight with you about your contract. When we're on the really small end of losses, which is what most of my clients face most days, then a really strong contract can make somebody say it's not worth it to fight about this. When it's a lot of money, they're probably going to try to fight your contract. At that point, that's why I really am like insurance, insurance, insurance. Because if you get sued and you had general commercial liability insurance, hopefully that insurance coverage includes an attorney to defend against the lawsuit. Yeah, I would say this is very rare occurrence. Super I don't rare. want to freak out yeah. anyone <laughs> who's about to start a staging business. This is actually very, very rare. But I think one of the important things to know as a business owner is you have to prepare yourself for a worst case scenario and understanding the risks involved in starting a business. What does that mean for yourself, but also your assets? If you have family, especially, that's also a consideration. And also as you grow your business too, it's no longer about you. It's also about your team members, right? Because they're depending on you to have a steady income so that they can support their families. So this is why it's really important. If you want to start a business, do treat it like a real business. We see this a lot in staging where the threshold to enter into the industry is actually fairly low. You can be a self-taught stager or you can take a class and then boom, you're a stager, right? Essentially, you just go down to city hall, turn your business license, you can be a stager. Anyone can. So the problem from that is if you don't treat it like a real business, you can actually put your own self and your family 
your own asset into danger as well. And we want to prevent that. And this is why we're talking about these kind of worst case scenario, like people's house getting burned down. But, you know, even now I still hear stories about how a contractor, you know, but some stages do project management as well. And a contractor hire a crane, for example, to install a chandelier and it fell off and then damaged the house significantly where they couldn't actually close on time. So those kind of things have ramifications. We just really have to make sure we are protected along the way and really minimize the risk as much as we can. Yep, I totally agree. And and I do just think it's important to remember to, to your point, Cindy, like this isn't common. We also create risk in our day-to-day life. We carry car insurance, so I won't talk about cars, but let's just say every time you go out and ride your bike, you could run into someone on the bike path and you could cause severe injuries to them and they could sue you. We're always creating risk. And so my goal is not to scare people or not to keep people up at night worrying about all the different ways that they could hurt people and lose money. My goal is just to say there are risks. And so make reasonable decisions. Don't assume there are no risks. Make reasonable decisions about what you can do to limit those risks. Make sure you're comfortable with the risks. Sometimes I do talk to clients about subcontracting in particular. And I'm like, really, do you really want to subcontract that dangerous service? Like, why don't you just have the clients go ahead and hire that person directly? Like, why would you want to get in the middle of an offering that's just higher liability, higher risk? But overall, I think that running your own business is for most people worth the risk. So don't, I don't want anybody to get nightmares (laughs) from our conversation, but do please buy insurance. No, and also I think having a great attorney on your side is important, right? So if someone is looking for a small business attorney, do you have any advice for them? Sure. So hiring an attorney is trickier than hiring most other business professionals. It's trickier than hiring an accountant because you do need somebody who's licensed in the appropriate jurisdiction. So it's a little bit more confusing with what I do where I'm writing contracts, when people are suing other people in court, it's very clear. Wherever you sue someone, you need to be licensed. But with my line of work, I won't take on any clients unless they have some connection to my jurisdiction where I'm licensed. That's Colorado. I have somebody on my team who's also licensed in Michigan. So if you don't have a Colorado or Michigan company, or if your client, if you're doing a specific, like an agreement for one client, if your client's not in Colorado or Michigan, we're not going to take you on as a contract client. But there are great ways to find lawyers in your state. So there's, I mean, now I would definitely try doing a little bit of Google searching. My part of the legal industry, the part that's focused on small businesses, creative businesses has grown a lot in the last, even the three years since I've started. So you might be able to find people by Googling Attorney for home stagers is probably not going to work, but attorney for creative small businesses. Actually, a lot of attorneys will market to coaches, and those are the kinds of attorneys they serve service businesses. That would be someone that you might want to ask about working with your home staging business. But if you aren't having success Googling or finding somebody that's licensed in your area by doing asking around in your networks or asking around Facebook groups, you can also go to your bar association's website. So every state has a bar association, assuming you're in the U.S. I think this is also going to be true in other jurisdictions, but you want to look for the bar association for your state or for your small country or for your province if you're in Canada And then go to the business law section and you can look and see who's the attorney that runs the board for the business law section. You can email that person and ask them for referrals. You just kind of want to get in with some business lawyers. 
and start asking around. People love to make referrals to other lawyers because it ingratiates us to our colleagues. So I would say don't feel like you're bothering attorneys by asking them for referrals. So like just ask people you know. If they don't know anybody, they'll tell you I don't know anybody. But just ask because whenever we give a referral to someone else successfully, that makes it more likely that that person is going to keep us in mind in the future when they refer. So I would say don't hesitate to reach out to lawyers because they're really likely to know other lawyers. But definitely look for an attorney who works with small businesses, who specializes in small businesses, and who understands service businesses. An attorney who works in real estate could also be helpful for home stagers. Transactional real estate attorneys, like people who write contracts for the sale of a home, they understand how real estate transactions work, and they will help you sort of think through those questions about how the staging relationship should look. But otherwise, somebody who knows small businesses well and who has a business model that's set up for small businesses, not a corporate attorney at a big law firm. In general, with the law, the more lawyers a firm has, the more expensive it is and the bigger their clients. So the firms that have hundreds of lawyers at them, that's like going to be the attorneys for Target. And it's almost certainly not going to be in the budget of any home staging company to hire them. But yes, hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, I think so. I also depends on your clientele, right? If you have corporate clients, for example, your attorney probably should have some sort of, let's say if you do like commercial type of work as a stager, because we start seeing stagers go into commercial side of things as well, then maybe it's helpful to speak with someone who are a little bit more corporate. But I think yeah. for most stagers, a small business attorney or someone who has worked with interior designers, that can mm-hmm. also be very totally. Helpful. Yep, I agree. Or even interior designers would be a great fit because they would be very likely to understand a lot of your business. But even like website designers or marketing strategists, just because there are relatively few lawyers working in this part of the market, it's not like some other areas of law, like securities, where you are looking for somebody who like really understands this particular type of investment vehicle. There's not enough lawyers doing small business work. We don't have a ton of specialists. But yes, if you can ask, have you worked with designers? Have you worked with other businesses that are similar to yours? Because you're pretty unlikely to find somebody that's done a lot of home staging work. Yeah, exactly. And so before we end our show today, what is your number one tip that you will give to home stager when it comes to their home staging business contract? Sure. So my number one tip for a home staging business contract would be to understand what's in it and to get a contract that you can feel confident about. I think the thing that I see a lot of new business owners do is use a template that they don't really understand. And a template might be helpful. It might be the right thing, but not knowing what's in there and not being able to answer client questions, not being confident when you send it off to clients, whether that means hiring a lawyer, which is a great option, but if not available to everyone, or if it means just going through and and saying, okay, liquidated damages, what is liquidated damages? I'm going to need to Google that (laughs) to learn what this is. Just understand your contract, know your contract so that you can know if it's right for you or not. And so that you can feel really good when you send it out to people. Yeah. And especially if a client comes back, have questions about it, you actually know how to answer. I think that's really important. And that's why I really appreciate you for our course, Five Figure Four Plan. You actually record a video walking through Mm -hmm. the entire contract template to make sure that everyone understands what each section means and why this is in the contract. Yeah, absolutely. I do not sell template contracts without video explanation because I just don't 
I don't think it's useful. I want people to understand what's in there to the best of their ability. Yeah. So thank you so much for being on the show today. That was fantastic. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Cindy. So that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help and support the show, there are three ways to do so. You can leave a review and rating on iTunes. You can share the show on social media, or you can donate to support the maintaining costs for the podcast. You can make a donation through the show notes or on the sidebar of our site. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. This will help us grow the show and book more guests. If you have any questions, feedback, and suggestions, you can comment on the show notes. You can also find the show notes by going to sagemore.com slash podcast. That's it. Have a fantastic week and happy staging.